Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 97. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Box for Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how'd they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I speak with Mark Eberhard. Mark teaches biology and AP biology at St. Clair High School in St. Clair, Michigan. In addition to more than 30 years in the classroom, Mark is the St. Claire High Theater Troops Director of Theaters, leading the school's theater program, next year being his 25th year doing so. Mark is also a longtime advisor of the school's student council. Outside of the classroom, Mark has been an active leader in the biology teaching community including as an ambassador for HHMI Biointeractive, working on the team of College Board's pre-AP biology course, facilitating BSCS NABT Regional Biology Teacher Academies, and serving on the board of directors for the Michigan Association of Biology Teachers. Mark was recognized as the 2019 Outstanding Biology Teacher for the state of Michigan. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark underscored Eberhard. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, we were just we were just chatting before I, I started hitting recording is um, this episode is going to come out right after school is over and right after we have done uh, what will certainly be a unique uh, read, at least unique for me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be different for different for everybody. Yeah. So uh, no, no getting together in Kansas City. And yeah, it's going to be It'll be interesting. I think, you know, I always say to people, they're like, why would you score these tests? And I was like, I always learned so much from the kids by doing it. Um, and I, I, I'm certain that that's going to be true this year as well, but it will be sad not to be together with all the members of the biology teaching community. Yeah. Last year was actually my first year. I, I tried to avoid it for a long time. I didn't <laughs> think I would like to sit down and score tests, but I actually enjoyed the experience last year. And like you said, found it very inform informative. So yeah. So I had to come back a second year. Yeah. And I mean, this will be, this will be my third year doing this scoring. So I've only, I'm a relatively newbie too, compared to, I know some of, uh, some of my friends who've been doing it for, you know, years and years and years, right. um, that got in on the early side. But, um, yeah, I, I was, I, I definitely was surprised how much it shaped my thinking and my teaching the next year, having gone through the experience. And I am, I'm very grateful that I, I got involved in it because I think that, you know, especially when they changed the CED this past year and they were, they were talking and I just, I felt very comfortable with the language of the AP. And I think it's such an immersion in the experience that you become much more comfortable in the language of the test, which, you know, ultimately served your kids pretty well. Sure. Sure. I, I also really appreciated the level of detail and sincerity that uh, the college board put into the process. It was good to know that our kids were being treated very well uh, when it came to scoring the test. Yeah, and I, you know, the number of people who, you know, li really truly live that mantra that um, every test is a kid is is really really apparent when you're in that room. Yes. Yeah. So um, it's gonna it's gonna be a, as I said it's gonna be a different experience. But um, as I said uh, to to some people who were like, oh, you're still gonna do that? And I was like, yeah, I, I still think I'm gonna learn. So um, and. 
this year of all years, I certainly want to do my best to help serve the kids who uh, struggled through the uniqueness of this spring and the challenge of pulling off this test. So any way I can help serve back to those kids, um, I'm grateful to help, help. So... Yeah, and then the other thing that we had in common was we were both part of that uh, that group who did the uh, live streams that Lee Ferguson put together. Um, yes. Yeah, and I think you were one. Of, you were like the second one, maybe. Uh, I was the second or third one. Yeah, yeah. I, I had the uh, pleasure of doing the uh, cell energetics, which was <laughs> a lot of material to cover in approximately sixty minutes. Yeah, yeah, I, I did the I did the labs for the first six units, and I just blurred through it. I I was way over sixty minutes, and and that's not even. There was a time when I was starting to put it together. It was like, oh well, I'll put in the labs from seven and eight, which are you know evolution ecology, which right. would take it be another half an hour to to do all the labs that connect to those. But um, uh, yeah, it was I, I was describing to Hannah Hathaway who who did one of them as well. And I was like, wow, that was like the most nervous I had been in a long time. And I record things all the time. <laughs> um, gotcha. There was a lot, a lot of pressure. <laughs> Hopefully we provided something that was useful to the community, which I think yeah. we did. Yeah. But the feedback I got from uh, both kids from my, you know, my students who are, are pretty high end kids in general in terms of, uh, you know, I think they were in pretty good shape for the exam when we left out, but um, also just other teachers who, friends of mine who, who teach a variety of different places, they gave me positive feedback that their kids were using them. And, and uh, it was definitely, it was definitely appreciated, uh, at least amongst the bio teacher community um, that we're part of online. So well, that's nice to hear. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I want to, I, I want to get into it and I am going to try to make this as uh, you know, uh, COVID free zone as possible. Although I know we're going to get into a little bit about the distance learning and how our lives have been there, but I, I always like to start asking people how they got into teaching. So, uh, you know, you, your next year will start your 35 for you, you told me, and, and Correct. I want to know what led you into the classroom. Oh, it, well, I did my undergrad at Michigan State, and it was always a, a two, two paths pulling me. Uh, I was always between veterinary medicine and going into education. Uh, I spent uh, all my high school years working at a vet clinic, um, had worked there for five years, uh, really was prepping for veterinary school. Uh, but I also had had such a great experience myself in high school and had some really great role models. I knew I would enjoy working with young people. And so I sort of jumped back and forth there for a couple of years and finally settled on going the route of education. Um, I, at, at that time, at least felt, well, the vet med practice I had worked at was a lot of routine castration space, a lot of day-to-day same. I thought... I need a little bit more diversity in my day, a little bit more unknown, <laughs> uh, and uh, high school definitely provides that. Um, so it was always a tough choice, but I'm not sorry that I chose education, and I've enjoyed being in the classroom all these years. Yeah, and so you you predate me going in, and I know that my path into the classroom was considerably easier than people who are who are entering into the the career nowadays. So uh, what was it like 35 years ago? You know, you get your undergraduate degree in biology. Uh, you know, did you did you have to go get a master's in education? Did you have to take a, a couple extra classes? Did you just have to like fill out a form? What was the process of getting there a licensure back there? Uh, back then it was, I think there was about three or four education classes you had to take. Um, they were almost all theory-based. I wouldn't say they were the most helpful. Um, 
There was one on uh, science methods where you actually worked with a former teacher. That one was, I felt, useful. Um, and then we had to do, if I recall right, I believe it was about a 12-week student teaching. Hmm. Um, but that was part of your undergrad back then. Uh, at least now I know at Michigan State, it's a five-year program. You have to graduate in your undergrad that then gives you the pleasure of having to pay graduate credit to go student <laughs> teach. Um, but it was about a 12, I believe it was about a 12 week student teaching uh, in a nearby school. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty much all that was required. Yeah. So, so definitely, uh, you know, a, an easier path to get in, but also um, as I've talked to a lot of other people, a lot less preparation. Um, <laughs> and yes. as you've mentioned, a lot less, a lot less practical, uh, uh, preparation. So um, I don't know your path. Uh, have you always been at the same school or, you know, when you got out, did you just magically fall into the perfect school that you're, you're in now or, or did you bounce around in a few different places before you found your, your well, forever I, school? I, I, I myself grew up in the city of Detroit, pretty much mm -hmm. dead center of city of Detroit mm -hmm. and coming up, this is about a half hour North of Detroit where I'm at. Uh, so for me, it felt like, it felt like I was going out into the boondocks to me. Um, and I thought, eh, it's a nice community. I'll give it a couple of years and then we'll, we'll look around and see what else is available. Well, a couple of years has turned into 35 years. It's been a great community. Um, it's close enough to the city. I can get in and out of the city whenever I want. Um, the town has been very supportive. The community has been very supportive. The families, the kids have been great. So we've raised our own four kids here and it's been a positive experience for them. So Yes, I've been at one place, which I never thought would happen, but uh, I've been very happy here. Yeah, that's that's great. That's great fortune both for you and for the community. Um, I do think that there is. Uh, I also I know a lot of younger teachers, and you know, it's, it's, there's a handful of people who have the experience you have. But I, I think, you know, for me, like I taught in three different schools my first four years um, teaching, and then my oh, fifth year. Yeah. And then my fifth year, and that was in part because, you know, like my position was cut the first school, the first school I taught in, uh, the, they, they had a budget cut and I was the new man in and they were cutting back and my job went from, you know, down to like a barely any part-time type position. They just were cutting FTEs and, you know, my, my position was expendable. And so I went to another school and it was not a good fit. And then I went to another school and it was an okay fit, but it wasn't a long-term, you know, it wasn't a place I could see myself, you know, career-wise. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, this year I've celebrated my, my 20th year <laughs> at <laughs> the same school. So, right. uh, yeah, I think right. when you get that right fit, it's, it, it, it is, it's, it's pretty easy for it to turn into a long-term gig. Um, yeah, when so. I, when I first came out, I was looking for more of an urban, I mean, this is, I guess, more of a suburban setting. Mm -hmm. I was looking more of an urban setting. Um, but at that time, when I was coming out in 1986, uh, at least in Michigan, those were very difficult jobs to find. Not many were open. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of the jobs that were open were, you were going between two or three buildings. Mm -hmm. Um, I started out doing a lot of coaching. There was not a whole lot of coaching opportunities. Um, and because of the way Michigan funded schools, uh, St. Clair was connected to this new Detroit Edison power facility. And so they had this huge tax base and they were paying, uh, a very good salary compared to almost everybody else in the area. Yeah. So that attracted me, but fortunately it turned out to be a great, a great community. 
Yeah, and again, you were—you know—we talk about sort of that generational shift because you're—you're about a decade before me, and and you're right. Like when I started teaching and I was going into schools, like I was the youngest person walking into a lot of the buildings I was walking into. Like in my first job, like I was the youngest person in my department by, you know. 10, 15 years. And then my second job was a similar job. And then by the time I got into my third year, that there were a handful of younger teachers just starting to come in. Um, but yeah, in the mid eighties, there were not a whole lot of teaching job openings. No, um, I was the first, I was the first hire in this building I, myself and one other young teacher. We were hired the same year. We were the first new teachers in the building, I think in like 12 or 13 years. Wow. Yeah, I think that's it's. I remember those times just because of you know sort of when I came in, and there were a decent number of job openings for me the first couple of years because there also weren't tra the training a ton of people um, back then because there were no jobs. So right. uh, the there there when I started teaching, it was right at that time where you know the the basically the generation of teachers who started in the you know the '60s and the '70s you know were were retiring. Um, and but they were through the 80s uh, between the cuts that they had to education and, and shrinking of staffs there just weren't a whole lot of openings so um yeah a lot of a lot of good fortune to find the right spot but that sounds like it's a great it's been a great uh great match um i hate to dwell on the question because i hate this question myself but uh what is the retirement situation out in michigan are is it a case where you get to sort of decide or are there financial incentives where you've got a, a ticking clock or or how does it work for you out there in it's, terms of how long you want to teach it's pretty much up to me okay pretty much up to you now once in a while uh, I think about three or four times since I've been here, the district has offered a small financial incentive mm -hmm. for people to retire, but not something I'm looking for right yet. Mm -hmm. um, our youngest son is just going into his sophomore year of college, so I'll be here at least three or four more years. I mean, I always said from the beginning, I would probably look at about 40. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. I think I still have the energy for it and the drive for it. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it, the nice thing is, is that if you're enjoying it, uh, especially later in your career, and I, you know, I'm, you've been doing this, like I have, I've seen a variety of people who come to the end, and there are people who come to the end, and they're, they're grinding, because they're trying to get to some sort of financial endpoint. And there's right. other people who walk out the door, and they, they, they're deciding that they want to transition, because it's the right thing for them and their, you know, their spouse, or, you know, their kids are out of school, or they want to travel more, or they're, they're being compelled, but not because the job has ground them down, but because they've decided to, to shift um, right. and, and that decision. And I think, uh, you know, having, you know, seen your work through the various things that we, we, we overlap in, uh, you are clearly still, you know, finding the, you know, the challenge and the joy in what we're doing. And, and that's, you know, yeah. as long as you're doing that, there's no reason to turn it over unless you're, you know, your spouse says, no, no, but we, we get such good travel uh, <laughs> prices if we if we go in September. But uh, yeah, we're not there yet. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I, I think the next couple of years are going to take care of that by themselves as well, too. So right. I mean, we, we've got a very we're lucky we got a very good retirement system in Michigan still. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I've been I've got my eyes open. I'm, I'm not opposed to going and doing something different, but. <laughs> I have no problem staying in the classroom either. 
Yeah. One of the interesting things that um, that you've done for a long time, and uh, I, it really popped out at me because it, it seems so unique, is the fact that you have been instrumental in working with the theater. And I think I found a lot of people who who commented on articles I found about your school that like, like you built their theater program, it sounds like, that, that the theater program is what it is because of you. Um, and, you know, you're going into your 25th year working with them uh, next year. And I find that to be, you know, maybe that's just in my isolated experience. That's a pretty unique marriage between a biology teacher and a theater director. And I'm curious both what led you into that role and also maybe how does it impact your role either in the school or, or, or in the classroom? Uh, well, when I first started, like I said, I got a, I did a, quite a bit of coaching. I coached football, I coached wrestling, I coached baseball. Mm-hmm. And I coached for about 15, 20 years. Um, enjoyed it. Um, but the theater program that had been here was fairly small. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the person that was doing it moved schools and there was nobody doing it for about five years. And I've, I myself had done some theater in high school um, and I had an interest in it. I uh, didn't know a whole lot technically, mm-hmm. but I, I had an interest in it. And so I said, ah, what the heck, we'll give it a shot. And so in 1996, yes, 1996, uh, we decided we would give it a go. Um, and uh, we started having some success. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed doing it. Um, then I went to, uh, when was it, early 2000, 2000, yeah, 2000 through 2002, 2003. Uh, I went to a summer program in Chicago at Roosevelt University, uh, the Chicago for School for Performing Arts, and got my master's in theater, huh. along with my master's in bio. Um, and, uh, we have been doing at least three shows a year for the last 25 years. Um, we are just about at show 100. I think we're going to hit that in this next, this coming season. Um, and it's been a, it's a great way to connect kids. I mean, I, I just looked at it. Not every kid can be an athlete. I love mm-hmm. athletics. I think it's a great endeavor for kids, but that's not for everybody. And every kid needs a way to connect in school. Every kid needs a way to find their place and make that connection. We all know if kids are connected to the school, they're going to perform better in the classroom. And for a lot of kids, the arts is their connection. The arts is their family. The arts is the way they connect to their Mm -hmm. community. Uh, And it becomes a very important part of their high school process. Um, And uh, I think our kids are more successful because of it. Um, And it's a great way to explore all types of issues and topics. Um, and we've, we've tackled a lot of issues as a school through our theater program as well. Um, so, and it's always been in my teaching, even in the biology classroom, people will tell you that we, I think the creativity comes into the classroom from the theater. Uh, the storytelling comes mm. into the classroom and in, uh, in the theater. Uh, the way I try to design my units is very much based on trying to tell a story. Um, when I first did the BSCS NABT uh, AP Biology Academy, that was sort of what triggered it. They talked a lot about building a coherent curriculum and that your curriculum needs to tell a story to kids. Um, and that just really clicked and it really changed how I started teaching. Um, mm-hmm. And Sean Carroll at HHMI always talks about the importance of story and why story is important for kids to get hooked on science. So I think the creativity of theater, the storytelling of theater is just a natural transition into the classroom for science. Yeah, I've, well. 
I've got Sean Carroll's The Story of Life sitting right next to me on my desk here. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I, I can see that connection. I also, um, having done some coaching earlier in my uh, in in my career, I I also realized that sort of in theater, um, there's also a more diversity of roles that you can have. You know, you, you you have the people who are on the stage, but you can also have people who are working. Yep. You know, the crew and and some people who work on sets. And you know, there's there's so many that you know you have people who can do things as simple as usher. You know, being ushers and um, there's a lot of different roles that can go in. And then when you think of diversity, I, I don't know if you guys do. Um, we always have class plays every year where mm -hmm. every class puts on a play or um, student directed plays or things like that. Um, there are ways of sort of um, bringing in kids who are, who want to try that role on, even if it's just for a few weeks um, and they don't have right. to have that light. I mean, today, today, if you want to be in high school athletics, you know, you, you had to be an athlete before you got to high school. Um, it's, it's pretty rare. Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. It, it's pretty, I mean, when I started, that wasn't the case. We would have kids who I remember coaching uh, some ninth grade, uh, you know, ninth grade girl basketball players who I'm not sure had ever seen a basketball before um, right. in my first couple of years of, of teaching. That was pretty typical. Yeah. But those, those days have been, you know, for the last, you know, 15 years, that's yes. just not the case. The, the kids come in and they've already got an athletic identity. And uh, I don't think a theater identity is really there. So, um, and it's also, con it, there are varying degrees of commitment from, you know, it takes over your life for three months to some smaller productions, which, yeah, might only take a few weeks. So, right. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's great, the idea of, of that. And um, it probably also has kids who connect with you who you probably wouldn't connect to. They may not be kids who would have taken you know, your AP biology course, but they, they develop and forge relationships with you in spite of that. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I, you know, for a school, we're a lot of, like a lot of schools in Michigan, we're shrinking a little bit, but we're still holding around 850 students mm -hmm. uh, for a school of 850. When we do our musicals, it's over a hundred kids involved. Oh, wow. Um, so it's, it's still a good participation level. Oh, that's great. Yeah. We're, so I'm in a school that's, we're shrinking a little bit too, but uh, we peaked out a little bit over 2000. Um, so <laughs> we're, we're shrinking down into the 1900. I think that they're expecting us to sort of flatten out around 1850 um, right. in yeah, the we next about, few years. We were at about 1200 about eight years ago. Yeah. Having been in a, a big school like this, I, I also know that finding identity is so important for kids in high school. And I went to a school that was closer in size to what you are teaching in now and it's a little easier to find your niche in a school that's that's that size yeah i always uh, thought about a thousand i thought was a nice number you know, yeah big enough that you had opportunities but small enough that you could pretty much know everybody yeah yeah and i'd say that that's one of those downsides i think to our size is that aside from kids who take like honors in ap biology or who have like a one or other two little niches, there's like large swaths of kids who will come through our school who I will never interact with. And that's just the nature of a building our size, you right, know, right. Um, that's the, that's the case. And uh, yeah. And I think that there is an intimacy to that school. I've taught, to, I've taught in schools that size, but um, uh, I would say that's one of the things that I, I don't like about my size, although there are huge benefits to being in a big giant school. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so. Pros and cons with both for sure. We have a sister school in our district, and we proposed combining the two schools so we could create a school of about fifteen to sixteen hundred. But the community was not having any part of that. <laughs> they wanted their small town schools. Yeah, 
Yeah. And, and Massachusetts, it's, it's been, it's been interesting to, cause I've lived in a variety of towns. I live in a town uh, that is part of a five town region. I teach in a two town region. I went to one that was a four town region. So my whole life I've been <laughs> around those, but I've also taught in some of the smaller schools and lived in some towns with smaller uh, schools. And Massachusetts is definitely a, uh, the, the benefits certainly outweigh the the costs. If you can get that school up in the, you know, 1200 to 2000 size, uh, there's, right. there's, there's a lot more opportunities. Um, you know, if you're the right kind of kid, uh, there's some kids who, if I get a little lost in that size, but uh, I think for most no. of our kids, we're able to serve them pretty well that way. These are two neighboring communities that each have had their high schools for 120 plus <laughs> years and yeah. have been for 120 plus years, pretty intense rivals. <laughs> so the thought of becoming one or the other just didn't sit well. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard that, you know, that when they, the regionalization comes around, we, we just heard that there were a couple of towns that were combining and one of the other ones they invited in. And it was just, it was that exact same thing that these two towns have had a rivalry for so long. You know, I don't know that it was over a hundred years, but it's, it's one of those things that for generations, the towns have had rivalries and they were like, yeah, no, we can't, we can't combine into a single town. <laughs> so we, we see the same things here. Uh, they're there. Gotcha. All right. Well, another thing that, uh, you know, I, I, I always chuckle when I talk to Michigan folks, um, and I've, I've had a few on the, on the podcast uh, over the years, uh, they always have this, this thing that like, they talk about, yeah, they're MABT. And I was like, no, no, MABT is the Massachusetts Association of Biology Teachers. Uh, as I write my notes in my MABT pen, that's not from Michigan, it's from Massachusetts. <laughs> but uh, but uh, you guys have a, you guys seem to have a great organization and, um, and, and really you've been heavily involved in that. Uh, and I'm curious how, uh, I know that you guys had, you have some PD usually around in March and then you have something that's over the summer um, based uh-huh. off of some conversations that I've talked to uh, some folks in the past about. Um, I'm curious how you guys have been impacted um, in your organization and your planning for PD uh, with the closures that you guys have been dealing with. Well, we typically, and we have just gotten the, the organization was really strong when I first started as a teacher and then sort of died out. And then myself and a, a handful of other folks, we got together and we've been rebooting MABT in Michigan. So we were about to do our fourth summer conference uh, in June, uh, which we've had very good support for. Uh, we have just and then we decided once everything started happening that we would have to cancel that June date and hope to schedule either in August or in the fall, depending on what the community standards were. But just recently we decided that, you know what, it's a good chance that we are gonna be going back in the fall to either remote teaching and learning, or we're gonna be going back to a hybrid of remote teaching and face-to-face learning. And teachers are looking for help with how do you do remote learning? How do you do remote teaching? Uh, so we changed it to a virtual conference, which we're going to be uh, doing on June 25th. Hmm. Um, I just posted it yesterday. Within less than 24 hours, we've already got 100 and some people registered um, for this conference. Uh, so it took off even more so than we expected. So we're, we're going to have to do a little bit of rethinking how to, to handle the conference and make it efficient and work and keep small groups. And But we think we can do it. Uh, we're looking forward to it. Nice. So, so uh, I'm a little curious about the how you're going to go about your with your, you know, your organizational like plan. Um, 
do you have, you know, I know in the past you guys have used like some sketch and, and those type of things. Are people going to be able to sign up for workshops that are going to have like Zoom links or uh, like, how does, how does this thing get organized? How do you do, that, how do, you do such a thing? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> so we have our format down from face to face, no problem. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's why we pushed going with Zoom because Zoom has the breakout room options. Yep. And also for a small fee, I can ex- we can expand from our limit of 100 people to 1,000 people, though we're not going to in any way, shape, or form host 1,000 people. Uh, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, we are going to be having that discussion next week, uh, whether we're going to have different sessions going on in different breakout rooms and people will pre-sign up. Uh, so some of that logistics has still got to be worked out. Because uh, this is like, like I said, happening as of less than 24 hours ago. So I don't have a good answer for you yet. Yeah. But you do have a, as I said, you do have a pretty strong group of folks who, who run workshops and, and that sort of thing. So I'm not, I'm not shocked by that number. I know that one of the teaching communities that I am uh, very strongly associated with um, was the, we have an Amgen biotech experience group that is that is housed out of we have the massachusetts grouping of it and there's sort of three sites um and we're a pretty tight community and uh they did a sort of you know we've had these like loose things where the you know the person who runs it for us says hey uh, you guys want to have a zoom uh, uh and get together and like we're gonna do it at like three o'clock on a wednesday and then like 30 of us all show up <laughs> to hang out right. and, and we started talking and like immediately just as a group and this is the same group of 30 or so folks who uh, you know, we, we're the ones who go to the summer workshops together. We have a return to campus, uh, during, uh, you know, where we go to Harvard and do, uh, you know, returning teacher training. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's just like a party. Like you go and hang out for a day with your friends from around, you know, new England really. Um, and you know, yeah, we do workshops and we do stuff like that. And, um, you know, it's, it's become, uh, my local, uh, my local group, we have the Massachusetts Association of Biology Teachers, um, and a lot of those folks there are heavily involved in that. But um, I think a lot of teachers are, especially those who are heavily involved in PD, are like itching um, <laughs> to, to do stuff because like I know I was supposed to run a workshop down in Maryland uh, at the end of this month and that got canceled and I was right. supposed to uh, go into to university and work on something. And I, I had like, I was supposed to go away to, to UMass Amherst for a week. Uh, and like I had right. three things on my docket that all got canceled. So uh, well, I usually have four or five commitments in the summer that range from three weeks or three days to a week long too. Yeah. Um, so this will be the first summer that uh, I don't have a whole lot. Yeah. At least physically leaving this place. <laughs> yeah. And I, I started doing, for me, it was, I would say it was up five years ago um, when my youngest got sort of old enough where it was like not a big deal to just send him off to camp. You know, he's a middle schooler now, but uh-huh. when, when both of the kids were now old enough that if I like got on a plane and flew away for some, someplace for three to four days, like it, my wife wouldn't go crazy. Like it was, it was manageable. Um, right. Cause you, but up till that, it was like, I was sort of full-time on for the summer. Uh, I would put them in camps for a week if I had like something I had to do at school or, you know, things like that. But even then I was still around. Um, but I would say about five years ago, they got old enough that I could travel um, and do that. And then since then I've pretty much booked, you know, between the AP read the last couple of years and, and a couple of other workshops. And I've tried to travel a little bit, 
either to teach and present workshops or to go and attend something uh, to help myself grow. And so just as you said, I, it's going to be weird not going anywhere. <laughs> right. Uh, but so I was the same way. When our kids were small, I did not, you know, that was priority. I didn't travel. I didn't get to a lot of workshops. But as the kids got older, that became easier. Yeah. Yeah. So, so does it sound like you guys are, you're, you guys got this virtual conference. I'm, I'm like, I'm going to have to start bugging some folks um, in a couple of weeks once you guys pull it off. Cause I, I'm going to want to hear how that goes. Cause uh, I know that um, NABT, you know, is supposed to be in Baltimore right. next November. And um, we'll I know that, goes. yeah. And I know that um, having, you know, heard a lot of things that like, they're 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 not stuck in like a mindset that it has to be in Baltimore or it can't happen that kind of thing. I think, you know, Jackie and everybody who puts time in to organize that are just a, such an amazing job. Um, that I I have a lot of trust that they're going to put on something that's going to work. Um, oh, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't know how comfortable I'll feel going to Baltimore. Like, you know what I mean? Like, am I going to want to travel? Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not a spring chicken and I have asthma and I have a family and, you know, like, right. Um, and who knows what our teaching scenario is going to be like, or are we going to be, you know, can you imagine if I'm like virtually teaching, but then I'm going to travel to Baltimore? Like, you know, that's not going to work. I can't, you know, we'll see As the numbers, yeah. the numbers keep dropping. We'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that all washes out, but I trust them. But I, I, I also do, there's also a part of me that, that likes the idea of virtual conferences because there is a part of me that thinks about my travel and like carbon footprint and, and that sort of stuff and wonders about, boy, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, instead of flying a couple of times during the summer, I was able to virtual conference or virtual workshop or do that stuff and, and have it be close to that both social and intellectual component that you get from the face-to-face. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how much you can replicate that. Yeah. yeah. Normally, one of the things I do in the summer is HHMI Biointeractive does a week-long PD for all of our the ambassadors. Mm. Of course, that's not going to happen in Washington, D.C. this summer. Uh, so in lieu of that, they're going to do some online stuff in terms of conferencing. So that's that'll probably be my first experience as a participant to see what it's like to go to an online conference. So it'll be interesting to see what what's what you can maintain and what's different. Yeah, and from what I understand from people I know who've gone to that, it's a it's it's quite a pampering you guys get down there normally. So that'll be a that'll be an especially hard one to reproduce. They they take very good care of you. Yeah, and the yeah, folks I, that do the, the folks that do the food there are outstanding. So we will definitely miss that. Yeah, I was I was bummed to not be picked for their cohort that they just uh, that they uh, just asked for applications. Oh, did they release that? They uh, the first round is out, so they 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 do they went down to I think it was eighty something finalists that they've gone down to, and I, I did not make the cut, which uh, I'm you know not shocked. It's the, I everybody I talked to who was an amazing teacher. Uh, and I know a lot of amazing teachers from either NABT or from, you know, the read or that sort of stuff. And it was like, every time I talked to somebody who's, you know, similar in career path or, you know, right. doing something exciting, they're like, Oh yeah. Did you see that's open? I can't wait to apply for that. And I was like, Oh gosh, I'm competing against this person too. So I was like, yeah, I, I had sort of mentally prepared myself to, to not make the cut, but th- just disappointing nonetheless, because it's an amazing organization. Yeah. I'm hoping just, that there are. 
I was in the early days, so I just stumbled in through the back door, luckily. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, I said it to Paul Strode the other day because we were ch- Paul and I are, are good friends. And he's like, he's like, geesh, I don't know that I'd make it in now. And I was like, Paul, I think you'd yeah. make it in. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he was. That's what uh, most of us that are currently ambassadors are saying. It's like, ah, I'm not sure we can make the cut. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of the current ambassadors. But I will tell you, uh, that's a lot of humility out of that group because uh, the, all the ambassadors I know are pretty amazing, uh, pretty amazing people. Of, so a lot of top notch people there. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I hope I'm hoping for future cohorts. And um, as I said, there's, there's other opportunities. I, I had, I had a handful of things sort of lined up and uh, I would, I would be lying if I didn't say HHMI was my number one choice. Uh, but wow. but uh, I have a couple of other uh, professional, professional things that I'm going to pursue down the line. Cause you know, it was a great opportunity to learning, but it's not the only opportunity to learn. Oh, so absolutely not. You, you got to keep, got to keep those There's avenues open. Fortunately, a lot of folks out there willing to support education. Yeah, there's a, there is, and it is a golden, it is a golden age of biology research too. So uh, people yeah. are doing some really nice Big stuff. Time. All right. Well, before we get into, you know, like the, the, the media stuff, I'm curious, you know, we've touched upon a little bit, how, how did distance learning go for you this past couple of months? And we're still in it as we still have students, unlike a lot of other folks, but um, how has the last couple of months gone? Do you feel like you, you were able to get to an equilibrium or? It was okay. okay. Uh, It's not, uh, it's not what I, if I have to do it in the fall, it will definitely look different. Mm -hmm. Um, so part of it was for me, I do AP and then I also do our general, general bio. Um, so good or bad, uh, with AP, I started with units seven and eight for (laughs) various reasons. So I was a little behind the eight ball when everything sort of stopped, but we got everything in. Um, and uh, those kids worked hard. I was very pleased with their efforts and so forth. Uh, and then for my general bio kids, as for the rest of the school district, um, we were not allowed to give assignments that were going to be scored or graded. Um, kids were only going to earn credit or no credit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, as a department, started to design lessons that got kids outdoors, that got kids out exploring nature, that got kids doing things that um, were more interactive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those seemed to be well received. Uh, we weren't trying to push any type of traditional curriculum out uh, during the remote learning phase. Um, so we tapped into a number of good resources. We did some scavenger hunts. We did some stuff through um, the, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm blanking there. We, we did some stuff through Cornell's Bird Lab. We did some mm-hmm. stuff through the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Uh, we did some stuff through HHMI. Um, so things that were getting kids to interact and not just, it wasn't filling out worksheets. It wasn't listening to me on a tape lecturing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We didn't try those types of things, but kids being kids, uh, as they figured that their quote grade credit, no credit wasn't going to change whether they did the assignment or not. uh, The last couple of weeks, we've seen a little bit of drop off. Um, I say we had about 60, 65% participation at the beginning. Um, for ninth graders, uh, and we're down, you know, probably less than 10% at this point. Oh, wow. And that's, that's, that's across the board in all classes in the district. Um, hmm. so that's something that's good. And that's sort of how a lot of Michigan schools have been. Um, there was a lot of concern about, uh, 
504 plans, um, special ed accommodations, what would be the legality if these assignments were graded or counted. So everybody backed off of accountability, mm-hmm. which I'm not arguing with, you know, under the circumstances may probably have been the best choice. Um, but it's going to be interesting in the fall if we are doing some type of remote learning, either whether it's 100% remote learning or hybrid, uh, obviously we're going to have to have some things different. <laughs> and there's going to have to be some accountability in those types of things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what you're saying is um, remarkably similar to what Massachusetts stance has been. And, you know, we were in, we were probably about 60%, maybe 70, 60, 70% of the way through our quarter three uh, yeah, when, when we, when we broke. So, um, th- I think that was actually the the hardest thing about what was going on because it took us forever to figure out what to do with quarter three, quarter four was actually pretty easy. We, you know, the credit, no credit was pretty obvious. It seemed like that was some mistakes, but we were, there was a lot of leeway and a lot of sort of up in the air to decide what to do with quarter three. Um, and so I feel like that really slowed us down uh, on getting policies and, and being clear and about expectations with our kids. Um, and that was, I think that was probably the toughest, most stressful things for kids because you'd have kids, you'd be like, you know, like, well, if it's just credit, I was doing better the first couple of weeks of quarter three than I had been on the other quarters. Does that mean that that effort doesn't count? Like, you know, you had kids who were like there and you had other kids who were like, you know, who were not off to great starts. And they're like, if it's, you know, if it's only, if we get a grade on this, it won't be fair because I didn't get an opportunity to raise my grade. <laughs> it was like, it right. was like, we were getting a lot. And so there were, and I teach in a community that is uh, very passionate about education. Like it's one of those, you know. Yeah, ours is pretty strong as well. Yeah, I mean, and I feel bad for, you know, administration. And I, I've said it on other podcasts. My, our superintendent has done a heck of a job through this this whole thing like really keeping the right things on the front, you know, the front burner and being clear about objectives and that sort of stuff. But uh, I would say, you know, not unexpectedly, uh, we struggled a little bit with the communication around grades and, and we eventually got to just that credit, no credit for quarter three and quarter four year grades were based off of their historical grades from quarters one and two. Uh, but there's no punitive action. If like it's, if you don't get credit, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that you can't move on recommendations that already been made for next year. Um, and I would say I have been, we, we've been fortunate in terms of our, uh, in terms of the populations I work with. Um, and I work with honors biology and AP biology this year. Um, and I have, I have really high, uh, really high level of engagement. Um, I would say the group of my, that was not as engaged, um, my seniors who were in my AP classes, uh, I dragged them to the AP test, uh, but oh, yeah. for some of them, they were and uh, understandable. Like I think there was a right. lot of emotion that came into this year. You know, uh, I had a lot. Of, I had several very tough conversations with some kids who felt like you know that was just this was very unfair, and they felt like they were being robbed. And uh, you know, a lot of I have a lot of sympathy for how they felt, and I think that everything yeah. they felt was very understandable. Um, but some of them their motivation hit the floor. And if you are not walking into the room and you're not seeing the teacher who you have a connection with, then it's pretty easy for you to oversleep um, and, you know, miss your Zoom class and not get the work in. And so I, I, 
I was probably a little softer on my seniors. <laughs> um, and uh, I remember giving some feedback on an assignment to kids. And I use a, I do a sort of a standards-based grades approach in general. And so it wasn't a big deal. And I just gave them the feedback. And my kids, my AP kids told me that I was very soft on them uh, because they had been working on a lab that was supposed to be handed in like a week after the closure, but we just put a pin in it. And then I eventually collected it during quarter four, just as like a progress type thing. Uh -huh. um, and they were, they were mediocre. I mean, like if they had handed them in, in real school, I would have torn them to shreds and made them, you know, like gotcha. told, told there. And they're like, you were soft on these. These weren't great. And I was like, they were okay. Considering the circumstance, like, you know, were they good? You know, well, in the sense that you had to work together on this and it's a pandemic and you didn't get to be in the same space and there was a month between when you actually finished the lab and when you wrote it up. And like when you add all of the extenuating circumstances, were these okay? The answer is, yeah, they were okay. You know, sure. were, were, had we been in school, would they have been acceptable? Probably not, but they also would have been better had we been in school. So um, I think I've, I've modified my expectations a little bit, but what you said about next year... Um, my biggest concern is uh, the reason that what we did worked was because um, I built community for seven months. Right. That's the same here. And yeah. um, I am very concerned about, you know, not so much with my juniors and seniors. So I'll have AP kids next year and I can build community with AP kids because I've had most of them before and, or they all know me. I'm a known quantity, but for my, right. my fresh, my freshmen and sophomores in my honors bio class next year, um, building community is hard when you're in person. I am really, I'm really worried about building community in an online space. And I think I'm going to have to spend some significant time thinking about that. This I, would agree. I would agree. That's one of the, the topics we're going to try to address at our MABT conference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, it takes, it takes a good month at least to just get routines established, get rapport established, mm. you know, and if you're only meeting online, boy, that's going to be different. Yeah. And I also don't think it's a strength for me. I think that um, I, I'm really good at doing it with my older kids, but uh, I, I I will say that freshmen and sophomores, that, that group that I have, my honors kids, um, it, I there are years where I will have classes that just don't ever build, like it, they build a very loose community. They don't have great tight knit groups in there um, on a good year. So I'm, I'm worried about that. It like on the mixes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think there are teachers who, and, and I, I know there are teachers who are, they build that community and it's like, it's that, that is their, their strength. You know, that is their, my strength is, um, I can break down a journal article. Um, uh, <laughs> I can design a lab. Um, uh -huh. I can, I can like do that. And I, and I think it's one of the reasons why I build community really easily with my AP kids. Cause I build community through the work and they've, they've opted in to the AP level work. And so we build community around the work. Um, and I, yeah. I think that I need to develop skills about helping build community around the kids a little bit more, especially for these those younger students who honestly are very guarded um, because oh, yeah. of the, how young they are and that sort of stuff. So, Absolutely. And uh, with the AP kids, I mean, I, I have mainly sophomores for AP, but the, um, the just the fact that they've decided to take that class and you have this common goal to get towards this national test is, I mean, that alone just starts help putting everybody with a common target, a common goal. It's a little easier, I think, in those situations to build community. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's been, again, we, I tell the kids all the time, I appreciate their hard work and I learn a lot from kids every year. Um, and I think that's probably been my biggest takeaway this year is that, oh gosh, I guess like I gotta get better at this community building thing with my younger kids. Cause I felt like I had been struggling with it this year in particular with, I, I only have the, I also only have one honors section this year. Um, my schedule, unusually we had a huge sign up for AP. So I had a very AP heavy schedule gotcha. this year. Um, normally it's it's a mix of honors and AP and sometimes other things as well. But this year I'm all, almost all AP um, and next year I'm going to go back to sort of a 50-50 between the two. Um, gotcha. But because I only had the one section, I didn't have like two groups to play off each other to like try something out and then sort of see how it spelled. So I only had one sounding board and we yeah. did a lot of new stuff this year. So sometimes I was sure it was like, well, was it the activity? Was it my, how I rolled the activity? Was it this group of kids? What is it? And now at having the, gone to the end of the year, I think, yep, I just need to build better community um, with the group. Um, you know, how we go, go going forward. So uh, definitely built that as a goal. <laughs> yeah. well, anytime you're trying new material, if you can run it two or three times, that's certainly oh, yeah. going to be an advantage. Huge advantage. All right. Well, um, let's, uh, you know, and you can put this in however, like, however you want to do, uh, regardless of what next fall goes on. But uh, assuming that there is comes a time when we are not in pandemic and you are back in the classroom, what are you looking forward to uh, in your classroom in the, in the years to come? Well, looking forward to, this based off of the one I'm looking forward to getting back into the lab and doing those, the open-ended investigations and doing the guided inquiry labs uh, because of the way AP fell this year, like all I'd, I'd say half of the labs we didn't get to do in person this year. Mm -hmm. um, and that I, I really feel the kids missed out on some really good stuff. Um, so I'm looking forward to get back in, back into the lab situation. I find kids being very creative kids are very um a lot of kids are very good at thinking outside the box in lab experience uh so that's something i missed the last few months uh and was very difficult to i best i could but very difficult to reproduce in a remote learning setting based at least on the skills i had mm -hmm. um uh looking forward to uh come you know just interacting with kids, uh, looking forward to, you know, enjoying, like you said, that sense of community of being together and, and enjoying each other's company and, and, and learning together. Uh, those types of things um, are things that, you know, we'd like to get back to. Uh, doing things through a computer screen is not as satisfying. Doing mm -hmm. things through a computer screen can be a little bit cold to me. Um, you know, we did some Zoom meetings and Google Meet meetings, and we interacted and talked, but it's still, to me, it wasn't the same. It's yeah. Same. Um, yeah. And so I'm hoping, hoping we, if we have to go that way in the fall, that we can, I can find some better tools, uh, like you said, for making connections and building community. You know, my AP kids, everything went great because we had that, as you said, that sense of community already built. Um, but starting from scratch next year, that's going to be interesting. Yeah. I, um, I am actually running workshops uh, for my district on how to do zoom <laughs> meetings oh, yeah. and how to, how to use breakout rooms. Yeah. Um, 
I'm, yeah, part I like of a, I'm, I'm part of a group who's been doing that. And uh, I had I had a fair amount of success in there. I also have a, a background of doing some online facilitation um, in some other areas as yeah. well. So like I was able to draw from uh, a skill set that I had. I actually hadn't used in a few years, but uh, stuff I've done. But um, yeah, I think the 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 being in the physical space um you know i i i also wonder if some of the decisions i made when we moved to the virtual space like i i let my kids turn their cameras off like they didn't have to put their zoom cameras on yeah i did the first couple times and then i decided to change that policy <laughs> but i like as i said my kids are pretty good in general and they're all there but um i miss i think that that actually hurts community i think they having their cameras on is pretty important yeah i like, do too so maybe there's got to be like a happy media maybe it's like the cameras have to be on for some part of it like if you're in a breakout room you gotta have your camera on so people in your group can see you like you have to do that like i think there are norms and things like that that we we need to come to what makes the most sense for our communities. Um, and it's also respectful um, of right. the kids. And I, I talked to a, a teacher who, who works with a group and he, and he was saying like, yeah, there's, there's kids who have, you know, uh, really, you know, they have, they have body, uh, body image issues or they, they're, they have embarrassment about like, or, or some shame about where they live, you know, the, the space mm -hmm. that they're in and, and to force kids to be on camera is to force kids um, who, are worried about their inequities being on display in a way that they can cover in the physical space. Right. They can't, they may not be able to hide that that way. And that um, without building some norms and doing that, just to say, these are the rules and you got to go do this. I feel like a lot of us sort of stumbled through like making up these kind of rules Right. This year without, like, I knew I was a little uncomfortable with it, but I couldn't have vocalized why I was uncomfortable with it until I had some deeper conversations with people. And now I started to get a little bit around my headspace about, oh, yeah, there are some reasons why, like, a policy where they have to have their cameras on or that sort of thing doesn't make sense for all kids in all spaces. But I couldn't have told you why. I just knew that I was uncomfortable making that, you know, not yeah. just because. And when I say I changed it, I only, I only my policy was you need to have it on at the beginning for the first few minutes just so I can, we can make physical contact, but I did not require them to keep it on the whole time. Yeah. I mean, and that's a, I know that's a great, I think that's a great adjustment to go to. Um, I, I actually started saying to my kids um, that, that I would like to see them more and that maybe we'll have an upcoming day where we'll try some cameras on in the upcoming days. And then when I said that, the, I, I said it to my honors kids, none of them turned their cameras on. I said it to my, one of my AP classes and half of them turned their cameras right on. Like they were like, Oh yeah, I just have it off. Cause I have it off. Like, right. That, that's like, that had become the norm. So they did it. And then they, they popped them on and like, all of a sudden I had eight kids, you know, out of my, my, my 16 juniors, eight of them put their cameras right on. Like it was not a big deal for them. It just was a case that it was just, I, I have to come up with how that all works. Um, yeah. I, I noticed, I was, you know, no official study, but I noticed that kids, when I put them in breakout rooms with only, you know, three or four other students were much more likely to have their camera on than when they were in the big group with like 30 people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's true. And again, differences between my older and younger today, I had my, um, I was teaching my, my, uh, my younger cohort and they had, um, they're working on wrapping up some citizen science projects right now. And so they have people who have the same citizen science project that they're working on. 
And I would go to groups and some groups, like all four would have their microphones on, they'd be talking and they were working on a shared doc. So their cameras were off, but they were all really looking at a, a shared doc. So I didn't really care about that. And, and I was like, great. And then I would go into another room and all their mics were shut off. Like, so they were all working on the same doc, but they weren't talking to each other. They were just talking they, through the doc then? They were just typing into a doc, mm -hmm. not communicate. So like we're... We didn't need to have the Zoom for them to do that. Like they weren't using the power of the platform that we were there so that they could talk and type and, and do that. So like I intentionally built the space to do a thing there. Um, and that was the other thing I've learned is that um, I, my decision about what was good use of synchronous time has really, really shifted over this time. So like I, today, for example, I really didn't do much leadership, but I put them in breakout rooms and had them work on stuff collectively in small groups that were common groups. And I had them work sort of parallel on those tasks, just like a group project if I was working in class. Um, and they said it was, I got really good good feedback from them from having done that a couple of times. So yeah, I think, so, you know, we're learning. <laughs> did your kids meet synchronously all the time? Uh, so we have a schedule that has, we have two synchronous windows a week okay. for each of our classes. So we have, uh, our schedule is, complicated um normally we have a, a rotating drop schedule um so okay. like we meet we have seven periods in in the schedule but you meet six a day drop one and then it waterfalls so like this period that's dropped becomes your first period the next day um and then we also have an alternating color scheme of skit days uh with our school colors of blue and gold um and that's for our labs so gotcha. i teach this year, my schedule is like extra nuts because I teach lab. Um, and we tried something this year, which we're going to go away from next year of we disentangled AP lab from AP class. So oh, I have four sections of AP lab, but those are every other day. So it's like sort of two classes worth of AP lab. Okay. Um, and so I have uh, and so I have a blue A lab that meets once a week and I have a gold A lab that meets once a week and I have a blue D lab that meets once a week and a gold D lab meets that once a week. But my C block, one blue and blue gold, I can meet two days a week. And my G, I can meet two days a week. And my F, I can meet two days a week. So it was like, yeah, you know, pretty complicated. Yeah. And so it actually worked. I think if you like, it's it's complicated right. if you live yeah. it. It's not that complicated. It's actually a very, I thought it was actually a really elegant way of them handling our schedule and doing all that. But gotcha. uh, the idea of it is that we are, we do not need to meet every day. Right. Um, with kids. And we do not need to meet every time we have one of those windows, but they encourage us to meet synchronously once a week with every one of our groups. Yeah, that's what we did. We met synchronously and then pretty much everything I did, I also made sure it was available asynchronously. Yeah. And then, so what, what I would do is I will, I post every Sunday night, I posted a weekly schedule. And on that weekly schedule, I said, this is my schedule of what I'm expecting you to do each of the days of the week. Some of those are things that they could easily do. Some of them I would just, you know, they would be things that would just pop up on a day and they would just do it on that day. And other times it would be something that they'd work on for a couple of days during that week. And I'd recommend that they work on, they said 30 minutes was our recommendation amount of time. So we'd do that. I would then pre-schedule in Google Classroom all of my meetings um, and all of my assignments to drop the morning of class. Um, and gotcha. so Sunday night, I would just spend like an hour on the computer just like pre-programming the whole week. Like, this is the week. I dropped everyone's schedule into each of the seven Google Classrooms. I pre-scheduled every single one of the Zoom meetings. I pre-scheduled every single one of the assignments. And then I loaded them all out. And then my week actually went very smoothly because, you know, 
It was yeah, all went, plug and play and ready to go. I, I definitely went from a mild user of Google Classroom to a very heavy user of Google yeah. Classroom. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it was, it was good. I mean, like it, it's worked for me and my kids have had really great engagement. Um, we've, I, we've also played, I work in a team of five honors bio teachers. Um, and I think, you know, you were saying like sort of where you were curriculum wise, we were at an interesting point because, um, we end term four, we had redesigned our curriculum where term four was going to be all about evolution and we were going to do, sort of a two big evolution units. So gotcha. while we had talked about evolution, we really hadn't gone too deep on evolution. You know, we had touched upon it. It's evolution and ecology are threads that run through our whole year. Right. But That's where I usually start with them. Yeah. Um, and well, the way we teach our evolution. Yeah. Our honors class, our, our first year course, we teach through an ecological lens. Right. Uh, where we do a lot of foreshadowing to prepare for evolution. And we actually bring up a lot of evolutionary concepts in other places throughout the year. Uh, and then we really sort of finish strong with evolution with a heavy ecology overtone as we come back to it. But we there were certain tenets of evolution that we we did not explicitly yet talk about. So we we did roll out a version of what would have been our sort of first of our two evolution units and we sort of actually made a hybrid unit which sort of hit all of our key standards that we would have expected the kids to get um and and we sort of did a version of that and then we added a couple of projects that were similar to what you said we did a uh, we had what we called a go outside uh project mini project uh where they were using like cameras and um, you know, bird cams, or they were going outside themselves and they had the choice to do that. And now we're doing some citizen science projects. Uh, so it's, it's right. been, a, I, it's been really good. And I've, I've been happy with the creativity of what we've come out with. The feedback from the kids has been really positive. Their engagement has been really positive, but at the same time, it like, I, I feel I'm a big believer that when I build curriculum, I like it to be evergreen. I don't like to build something that's a one-off that I'm not going to come back to and do it never no, use I, again. I hear you. <laughs> and, and I do feel like a fair amount of the things that we did this year, just by necessity, ha- were like, I'm going to completely forget that I did this thing. Like we did it to get through, but I don't know if it's got value going forward. Um, yeah, I, and, um, I would agree. I would agree with that. I think we were similar. Yeah. You know, All we right. Similar, we do a similar approach to what you described. Yeah, I was nodding along, which is great audio for a podcast. As you were talking about your uh, what you were doing, I was like, "Yep, bird feeders. Yep, bird feeder watch. You did that. Uh, you know, we did Zooniverse. That was the only other one that you didn't mention." Um, <laughs> yeah, we we've used Zooniverse before. Yeah. So yeah, no, but I think I, I think it's funny how we all sort of. You know, I, the more people I've talked to, it sounds like a lot of biology teachers like hit a lot of the same ideas. A lot of HHMI was used, uh, a lot of citizen science projects, a lot of those type of things. So it was, you know, I think we managed, we, we have a similar toolbox, it sounds like. And, uh, yes. It's good. Well, we travel in a, a lot of the same circles, so it's, <laughs> we're bound to pick up a lot of the same tools. Yeah. Well, hopefully we're all on the right track then. <laughs> All right. Before we get uh, to questions for me and picks the episode, uh, what do you like to do when you are not in the classroom? When I'm not in the classroom, uh, I've become for fun. I don't do it competitively. I like to. I'm a pretty co- avid, consistent runner. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the way I keep in keep in shape. And um, you know, I played sports in high school and all that type of stuff, uh, but more football, wrestling, that type of stuff. But as I got older, running became a nice thing, and I enjoy doing that. So I get out and run at least five times a week, uh, and then every so often jump into a race, but not to compete, just to 
to have something to shoot for. Yeah. Uh, I also uh, like to get out in the yard and work. Uh, we have maintained some perennial gardens and those types of things. I enjoy doing that. And not surprisingly, I'm an avid theater goer. Um, <laughs> we support a lot of the local theaters in the Detroit area uh, and try to catch, catch as many different types of shows as possible. Uh, and I like to travel. Uh, but uh, that, that's been shut down for a little yeah. bit now for this summer. Yeah. So those are some of the things I like to do. Well, we got a lot in common there because as a, I'm, I'm a pretty avid runner myself. Um, I have, I have not been competing a lot much the last few years because I'm getting old and slow, but um, yeah, yeah I, <laughs> I, get, I get out five or six days a week um, myself. So. Yeah. I'm not one of those. I don't know how people my age are out there still running like seven minute miles. I have no clue, but yeah, that's not me. <laughs> Yeah, I um I switched over and I, I was telling somebody the other day I did pacing for the Hartford Half Marathon the last two years, uh, which was great. Um, so I was running, you know, what what would have been it's now starting to become hard to run the pace. But when I first agreed to it, running a one forty half was not, you know, I'm I'm a like a one thirty three, one thirty four half marathon guy That's most good. of the time. Yeah, so a one forty is like within my you know That's doable. About where I'm at. Yeah. yeah. And so I was the pacer each of the last two years on that. And I loved it. It was a cross between teaching and coaching and, and, and running, um, to do cool. that. But that's the, the sort of only races I've done the last few years. But, um, but yeah, I just, this time of year in particular, I love to get out and run trails. Like that's my, you know, that's, that's my, that's my go-to It's to get out. And, yeah. We've got a lot of trails around here and they're doing a lot of work on our trails out here. Um, uh, this year, the, the, the local conservation areas have been clearing out parts of the, some of the forest. They're trying to get um, sort of mixed ages of the forest. So they're spot okay. clearing out spots and stuff like that. It's really fascinating, but I got great woods around here and I live in the central part of Massachusetts and uh, I do a lot of running out in there. And then uh, right now I'm sort of three days a week, I'm on the treadmill and then three days a week I'm getting outside um, sort of building back up. Cause I still have come back from a little bit of an injury and I don't like, I feel like if I run road every day right now, I can end up going too hard on myself. And then I, gotcha. <laughs> I got to back yeah, we up. Got, so. We got a lot of asphalt path. Yeah. We have a, it's called the bridge, bridge to Bay trail. So it goes down from Lake Huron along the St. Clair river down into Lake St. Clair, mm. um, Detroit river. So obviously being in Michigan, lots of water, same thing. Right. I, I use a lot of bike paths and running paths. And normally I'm like the only person out there. But yeah, the last month or so, it's been very heavy traffic. Yeah. My friends who are in the city who like run around the Esplanade in Boston are always like, one of my friends was like, how do you find, like, how are you able to go out and run and not like, are you wearing a mask or what are you there? I was like, well, if I go run roads, I, there's nobody lives near me. So if I just run road, I'm fine. But if I run on trails, there are like, I, I have a, a mouth covering that I bring and I usually am hiking it up as I get into the entrances of trails. Cause that's usually where I run into people. It's not gotcha. once you get, once you get more than a half a mile into these trails, there aren't people like people who hike into the trail, hike a half mile in and then they're like a half mile out. They're not three miles into the trails, you know, they're, um, or you're very few people are three miles into the trails, uh, where I'm going. Um, yeah, makes sense. So it's, it's, uh, but it's been good. And I, I think it's a good mental break to get out and yeah. not stare at the computer screen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I usually like to run in the evening at the end of the night just yeah. let everything go all right before we get to picks of the episode do you have any questions for me ah so let's see 
Well, you went through remote learning too. I think we some. I think we pretty much talked about it. But uh, what did you find to be one of your more successful remote learning strategies? If you were going to have to do this in the fall, what would you say was worth repeating? Yeah, um, I'd say the best thing that I I was able to do was um, I do. I'm somebody who does a lot of sort of small group work and a lot of challenge problems and a lot of turn and talks. Mm-hmm. Like that's like a big part of what I'll do. So. Um, Sometimes I do them as like I do now or some like an exit ticket time, end of the classroom type of thing. But um, very regularly, what I will do is I'll put a series of questions that tie to learning objectives that are, you know, very scenario type questions. Sometimes they're multiple choice. Sometimes they're open response. Um, and I, I have kids think about them and jot down some ideas and I give them like a minute to do on their own. And then I... I have them do a turn and talk and then I will solicit answers. And sometimes I'll have them, if it's multiple choice, vote for answers and that sort of thing. Um, And so that's sort of something that I've been doing as well, um, but I've been doing it using breakout rooms. And so what I would do is I'd put together a a slide deck of of challenge questions and then I'd put kids in breakout rooms and say, all right, here are the five challenge problems that have to do with what we've been working on the last two weeks go through and agree on like what you guys think the best answer is for this group. And that they, way they would talk to each other like they would at a lab table or a group table. And then I'd, as I'd pop into each of the, the breakout rooms and on my last time through, I would just pick a different kid to be the spokesperson and I'd have them type all their answers into the chat when we came wow. back. Wow. And so what would happen is we'd come back and I'd all of a sudden have like five groups or six groups and I'd have, you know, six different people would put answers in. And immediately you would see, all right, everybody had the same answer for group number one. For number two, I had two groups who said A, and I had, you know, all the other groups said B. Is it A or B? All right, that's one I have to go over. Everybody said the same thing for C. Everything, Everyone said the third, fourth, fifth. Okay, so two is the only one that's a sticking point, or two and five are the sticking points. And then I would just review those questions. Cool. Um, and it mirrored very much, I think, what would happen in the classroom. Classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, activity that I like to use challenge problems where the kids were really, the kids' voices actually dominated. It wasn't me in a, a Zoom call where all of the talk was me. Um, and something that I philosophically very strong, feel strongly about is that if you walk into a room, um, and I know this from helping you know newer teachers work, and I'm always doing observations, one of my favorite things to talk to them about is uh, whose, voices dom- whose voice dominated, who had the most words spoken in the room. And for right. me, a successful classroom is one where my voice is not the voice that says the most words in the room. Oh, absolutely. I would agree. And so that breakout room session allowed me to create an environment in a virtual space that was most like what I try to do in the classroom. Um, and so I have to, I, I'm going to have to do some more work, but I want to try to find, like, I would love to figure out how to do pogles um, <laughs> in, in a virtual space. Like, what would a pogle look like? uh, in, in a zoom class. Um, and maybe I it looks good. I, I don't remember where I saw it, but I took, um, I took the Pogil and I took a picture of each page and then I made that the background slide mm-hmm. and then you put the text boxes in. So then they can just open it up and type their answers directly into the text boxes on the slide. If I'm making any sense. Yep. Um, and that seemed to at least facilitate the ability to track the kids' work. Um, but yeah, I put them into breakout rooms. Um, we did the tr- we did the roles, those types of things. 
The recorder, of course, is the one that was typing into the boxes. I would jump into the rooms, ask questions. Yeah. So I think that's, I think if we go back in the, the fall, like what we did is we sort of, I think we both described, we kind of got through, um, but we design our curriculum much more meaningfully than just getting through. Um, right. And we have, that's how I felt like the last five weeks were, for, especially for AP, it was like, oh my gosh, I haven't got units four, five, and six in. We got to go. So I, yeah. I felt like we did okay, but certainly not as well as I normally think we do. Yeah. Whereas I post on me, I felt like I did nine weeks of review. Um, <laughs> did you? Yeah. Because I, cause we teach a storyline. Um, uh-huh. so we don't, we weren't following the units at all. Gotcha. We were like all over the place. So, um, yeah. So like when we were done, like literally if they had said, you want to take the AP on March 13th, I would have told my kids, yeah, go do it. Like, just do it now. Like you're good. Cool. You're, you're ready to go. Um, we had one more unit. There were some, uh, we had not done, uh, we were going to do a cancer and cell division, uh, unit. That was our seventh uh-huh. unit that we had planned. We had a story that was built off of that, but you know, honestly, it was the number of like learning objectives that we hadn't hit was like, you know, five or six out of all of them. Um, so so you've, have you found, I, I do the storylines with my intro bio, my honor spiral. I haven't tried it with the AP yet. If you found it's working okay. Yeah. So I was just, I was just talking about this. So we don't follow anybody else's sort of storyline. This is just the brainchild of me and uh-huh. my, my brain. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, we decided a couple of years ago it was what we wanted to do. So we blew our curriculum up and we picked some themes that we liked and and we put them together. And then we did a year and it was terrible. Um, we did a really bad job. I always said to everybody, um, the kids didn't That's notice. Normal. The kids, the kids were fine. The kids said it was great. They thought it was engaging and that sort of thing. And then, so last summer we did a pretty heavy overhaul of what we learned from doing it the first year, um, and we had like just basically seven big questions that we asked and then we had like sort of a hook to start you know some some sort of initial hook and then we had a series of activities that helped unfurl the story as we went and um and they were very integrative and all over the place that way um the, the one thing that we said is that we are supporting resources that we were using could be a little tighter to be a little bit more coherent to the storyline. Um, and so that's the piece that we're going to work on. So uh, we're going to be working on some resources this summer, and then we're going to revisit in August, like how we grouped our content with our stories. I think th- we're going to have to move some stuff around a little bit, but yeah, I felt like this year it was really good. And especially the way we tied our labs to our stories and like, we do a lot of big lab projects where we have, you know, partnerships with some university labs and some other things. And we did some cool, we did some really cool long-term labs that, that we built whole stories around. And so the, the lab component of the course and the story component of the curriculum really meshed in a way that I don't know would have worked in any other way. Um, and it was, yeah, it was very satisfying. Um, I was, I was really, I was really enjoying it. The number of times that like we got together at the end of the unit, we're like, yeah, that really worked. Um, like, uh, so yeah, I thought I'm, I, 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 that's the way I think, I think in terms of stories, I think in terms of hooks, um, uh, I thought we were able to do a lot of really deep biology that way. Um, and that's, yeah, I think yeah. one of my criticisms of the way that the CED sort of reads is it reads right. a little too, it's very traditional. It, it reads very traditional. And so, and we had a pathway last year where we're like, they rolled it out and we're like, uh, this looks the opposite of the direction we're going. What should we do? And we're like, eh, let's just do what we do. Um, 
I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was very happy with it. Um, I'm hoping that it's an NABT presentation, you cool. know, in a, in a year and a half, maybe. Um, I, I, I do stories, but I, had, I haven't made complete storylines for AP yet. Something I'm going to, one of my colleagues at MABT, she has been doing storylines for AP for quite a few years and she does, she really likes it. Uh, Heather Peterson's her name. Okay. Yep, she's at Holt High School. Yeah. Um, I talked to a few of the Grand Rapids ladies who also Christy do some stories. Yeah, Christy and, and Patty. Yeah. Uh, I interviewed them about probably about a year ago. Um, and they, uh, yeah, we talked and stories they do, with them. They do good stuff too. Yeah. So yeah, you got good Michigan people. If you want to build your like fighting, you know, I don't know the Michigan versus the um, Illinois. It sounds like you're ready for a, a Big Ten storyline yeah, battle. Yeah, Patty, <laughs> Patty, Christy, Heather, they're all on our board of directors from ABT. That's why. Yeah. That's why it's been taken off. We got some good people. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we have gotten to uh, picks of the episode. Uh, and Mark, what are your picks? Well, a uh, couple of recent ones I tried. One I, that I listed was something called Peer Grade. Um, and Peer Grade is a free online program. Uh, there are paid versions, but you can do the free version. And uh, kids write a response to whatever you give them. And then the system automatically assigns it to three other students to peer grade anonymously. And then it gives the kids feedback on it. So I found it very helpful when we were doing our practice FRQs. Um, that we, I could preload the FRQ in, I could load in the rubric, and then the kids could have that experience of looking at each other's writing, learning how to use the rubric, learning how things get scored. Um, and it, it worked very well and it worked very smooth. Um, it uh, was an online version of a technique that uh, I don't remember who again created it, uh, but there was there's one I've been using for several years that I got from the... Uh, from the AP bio uh, Facebook page where you put, you have three folders. The one folder has the question. The other folder has the student samples writing and the other folder has the scoring rubric. And, you know, kids can learn by looking at other people's work. Kids learn by seeing what good writing looks like. Kids learn by seeing what um, not so good writing looks like. And peer grade was a really nice program for, allowing kids to share work anonymously, get feedback on their work uh, without me having to score everything myself. I love that. So I thought it worked very well. Um, and I just, um, there's a, a place in Milwaukee called the Center for Biomolecular Modeling. Um, a great place to check out if you're looking for some type of professional development. Um, but anyway, um, I've been going there for quite a while and they have a book club and we are reading um, the, we're just beginning to read the book of uh, the end of October, uh, which is, I haven't got through it yet, so I can't give you a hundred percent thing, but it's about uh, the rise of a virus coming out of Asia and spreading across the world and causing a pandemic. Um, but it is very well written. Uh, it brings in a lot of biology in the process. Uh, talks about other types of diseases and pandemics. It talks about how the, really what does who do? What does the World Health Organization do? What does the CDC do? Uh, so I found it to be a very good book. Um, and then one other one that I listed 
in light of current events going on, uh, the last two years at HHMI, we've had the privilege of listening to a gentleman from Rhode Island University, uh, Brian Drewsbury, who is doing a lot with inclusive teaching uh, and uh, about equity and diversity. Uh, and uh, I think his work is really good. And it really makes you think about in your classroom, are you being inclusive? In your classroom, are you making it possible for everybody to succeed? Because in most cases, we, of course, aren't doing that purposely. But it really starts to make you aware of some of the things you might be unintentionally doing that are preventing others from being able to fully engage. Mm -hmm. um, so his, he's got some good work out there, some good videos and some good uh, papers out there that might be worth looking for if you're looking to find a way to make your classroom more inclusive. Yeah. Well, I think building off that inclusivity theme um, is is actually my uh, book. Uh, my my school has always every year puts out a you know summer reading. We don't have mandatory summer reading, but they have sort of a recommended summer reading, and they have one that is sort of a little bit more YA focused, and then they have one that's usually a little bit more faculty focused. It's actually usually faculty recommendations, um, uh -huh. so that and it's just sort of a common group, so that you know that hey, if you're looking for summer reads this is a group of books that people within our community are going to be looking at. And then they always host, uh, we have a, a librarian who does a great job who hosts uh, like book talks and like, like book lunches the first few weeks that we get back and like, you know, oh, if you read this and you want to come and hang out and, you know, have a, you know, have a snack in the afternoon or during this period of time and talk about the, the summer read of this, feel free. And so it's always draws a handful of kids uh, to every book. Um, Cool. And they also bring uh, faculty in. And, and this year, uh, one of the books that they featured is um, uh, a Stamped, uh, which is a remix. It's called a remix of the uh, book Stamped from the Beginning. Um, and so Stamped from the Beginning, um, which is uh, Ibram Kendi's uh, book, uh, was a National Book Award winner. Uh, I want to say it was either last year or the year before, but recently a National Book Award. And so um, Jason Reynolds uh, did a remixing of it and turned it into a YA version of it. So it is actually the two oh. authors, Jason Reynolds and uh, Imbram uh, Kendi, and it's uh, it's called Stamped Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. It's a remix of the National Book Award winning Stamped from the Beginning. Um, and it's a, it, yeah, it's, it's the... Uh, Ibram Kendi's books, um, you know, how, you know, how to be an anti-racist and, uh, you know, he's got amazing stuff that's out there. Um, I had already been sort of looking at uh, Stamp from the beginning as a potential book, but, but since this, this book has now appeared on my students' potential reading list for the summer, I, I've decided I always like to read one or two of the YA books um, so that I have, again, some of that common Right. Uh, book reading of what my kids may have been reading it's in there so i'm going to do that and then uh just to make things a little bit more uh you know uh transparent uh maybe uh i'm not going to do it from the big uh, box store in the sky uh so i've put a link uh in my show notes to uh an independent uh black owned bookstore in boston uh but i also put a link to uh independent black owned bookstores all around the country so uh if there's a if you're nice. thinking about an anti-racism uh book that you might want to get or something where you want to uh grow and learning more about other cultures um and maybe you want to buy them from a you know, independent black owned bookstore near you. Um, I've provided both of those links in my show notes. Very nice. 
All right. Well, uh, Mark, let me give my credits. Uh, so please subscribe to Life of School on your podcast player of choice. Um, I always appreciate it. Um, I, so I think I'm supposed to tell people to rate, review, and subscribe, um, but I don't really care if you rate or review them, but I like subscribers because I like those numbers. Uh, <laughs> I get to see if listeners out of there. Uh, Patreons, if you want to support the work I do, uh, help offset the cost of uh, hosting my media and hosting my website, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash lots and chip in a buck or two a month. I always post my uh, show notes uh, or my audio out uh, usually about three to five days early so you get an early release of the episodes um, often with mistakes in them so uh, if you like to make fun of me that's always a great uh, <laughs> I mean, often catch them in between when I post them to them and when I post them out to everybody else uh, I also post show notes on there when I post my regular episodes as well as on lifeoftheschool.org uh, music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and Magicians. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School you can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark underscore Eberhard. Um, and so, Mark, thank you so much for joining me. I thought this was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. I enjoyed being with you. All right. So uh, take care, everybody, and I'll talk to everybody soon.